One mic, one voice. You can change the world, it's your choice. One mic, one voice. You can change the world, it's your choice. One mic, one voice. You can change the world, it's your choice. One mic, one voice. Welcome to the One Mic, One Voice show, Building the Collective Conscious, a show that is created to give space with your voice, ideas, and a form of opinion can be heard, appreciated, and debated. I'm so happy to see all of you here today. Um, we have a very exciting event that I think uh, calls for us to come together as Black men to talk about the challenges that we face in this country. And I have reached out to um, some men that I know have their hand on the pulse of what's happening in our country. And in our brief discussion, it's important that uh, why we are the victims of this violence, no one ever asked us to speak. And so today, what we want to do is give you an opportunity to hear from us. I think um, black men are in pain, deep pain. And so um, who better to describe this lived experience than those who are going through it? In this conversation uh, with me is um, my dear brother, Jamar Rahman, who is in Delaware. He is an activist in his own right. He um, leads the library system there. I have known him since graduate school. He is more than a friend. He is a brother from another mother, as they say. <laughs> and uh, so I'm so excited that he is here to give his analysis. Jonathan Townsend is here. He is um, in Tulsa. Uh, Black Wall Street. Uh, this young man, I'm gonna call him a young man because he's he younger than me, but uh, he is a uh, dynamic, dynamic brother. He used to work for the mayor's office. We had a conversation with him down at, in the Greenwood uh, Center a couple years ago, but I have fell in love with this brother because he, he not only um, loves social justice, but he also puts his heart into it. Um, Alonzo Hill is here. He's in Flint, Michigan. And we know about Flint. We're more aware of the challenges that they face. And, and he's also in the library system. He is a man. This He, he reached out to me years ago. And, and when I first encountered him, I recognized his greatness. And I recognized um, that he was a gentleman that didn't let anything hold him back, regardless of the challenges that we face as black men. And he spoke into my life in a time in which I needed that. And so I'm so thankful to have him here. Um, and then also we have brother Timothy Parker, who is in Oakland. He is here. He's an MC, a musician, an artist, a um, social activist, 
that speaks truth to power, not just through his music, but through his life. So we, we are so fortunate to, to have everybody here. Um, I hear some background noise somewhere. Uh, let me uh, mute. There we go. There we go. We good. And uh, I see many of my friends, my colleagues uh, on here. It's, it's, it's a joy to have you. We're probably going to go. This is an hour and a half event. Um, we're probably going to go about, um, about an hour, and then we're going to open it up for questions. The chat will be open, and we want to hear your reflections, your questions as we, we go forward. Um, I want to start off, I thought, when I thought about this and what this could be, um, I really had George Floyd in mind. Mm -hmm. This might be an emotional conversation, so don't, don't, you know, men cry too, so uh, mm -hmm. don't be offended, right? Um, I, I thought that would be the centerpiece, but then I saw Atlanta last night. And I saw what happened to that brother as he ran and fleed and as he really fought for his life and ultimately lost it. So, um, Brother Tim, if you could briefly just reflect on these recent two events and how, how they made you feel and, and your reactions to them. Well, um, you know, um, I felt like, I, you know, I, I try to be an optimist when I can, as much as I can, you know, even though the world we live in is the way that it is. When the coronavirus was attacking, in my mind, somewhere in my naive, optimistic mind, I was thinking, okay, if anything might bring people together, regardless of, of, of culture or, or anything, maybe this will because this is something that we, all of us as humans are facing. But then I start seeing, you know, the, the same stuff going on and, you know, the, the, the people in China against blacks, the people in America against Asian people. And then to see um, George Floyd, I'm going to be real honest. When that happened, I, I mean, even yesterday when I saw, when I saw the brother in Atlanta, um, brother Brooks, I felt like, I'm down there. I'm an artist, so I'm a bit of an abstract thinker. So sometimes I have to check my mind because it can travel. And I was like, "Damn, is the world coming to a to an end?" You know, I, I know it's not, but it's just kind of like wow. in this time, we, we this is the last thing last thing we need. We already used to it because it's been happening, you know, our whole lives. But in this time, for something like that, in any time for something like that to happen. <laughs> At this point, I feel like, um, you know, and I think that the good thing is that, you know, I saw a lot of people of different cultures marching in the protest and, and in the protest. And I think that the voice of the voiceless is louder than ever. You know, I, all I can say is I'm, I'm, I'm angry and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm fed up. And um, at one point, and I don't know, maybe I still feel like this. I feel like it's going to be up to us to really... Uh, rise above, as they say, as black people. Because at one point, I was, I feel, I don't know, I still might feel like they ain't coming for us. We got to get on some Marcus Garvey type mentality. We got to do it for each other, with each other, 
and I'm not saying to separate ourselves completely, but you know that's that's all. You know, I'm a bit I'm a bit all over the place, but those are some of the thoughts that come to mind. Um, the good thing, I guess, is that they're 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 trying to pass some kind of legislation to to check the police. Um, but you know, the main thing I could say is, is I'm I'm angry and I'm just fed up, and I'm like, what is it going to take? You know, like a natural response would be to attack back, you know, but that's not going to come out good for anybody. But um, I'm a little frustrated. I'm angry, and and I'm tired of it, man. You know, I've dealt with police violence all my life. I saw my sister and her boyfriend get beat up outside of my house when I was like, I had to been like 11 or 10. So it's something that keeps happening, and people, you know, and and you know I have I have people that I know that are, are are other other cultures and other races and you're absolutely right we're not heard. In fact, I think white supremacy brainwashes everyone. I think that e- there are even some white people that might be good people or might not want to do no harm to nobody, but they have been brainwashed because every time they see black people on the news, they see crime and they see they don't show any of our a lot of our triumphs and our victories. So you know, it's it's. I don't have all the answers, but you know, right now I'm just kind of like I feel like the the best thing we could do as a people is is unite. But that's a whole other book in itself. But those are my beginning thoughts. As Brother well as Lonzo, the rest of Brother Lazo, yes, sir. Your thoughts? Um, it's very it's horrible that it even happened in 2020. I'm I'm upset, just like anybody else is. Of what happened to George, but. You know, police brutality is about as common as catching a cold in this society, unfortunately. And it's something that we need to, you know, work out amongst everybody. And I think that um, also with this this quarantine globally or internationally, should I say, it it built up the perfect storm for everybody to get out there and protest and, and make a difference. I just hope that we keep our foot on the gas pedal and make some policies and laws and all this other stuff to implement real change because marching is basically just symbolic. We got to get some real change. Brother Jamar. You know, the first thing that comes to, the first thing that's the most disconcerting to me is, is the, these incidents or these lynchings um, have exposed the, the, the impotence of our judicial system uh, the, the the big thing that the, the, the what we're finding is that you know justice rests on social media, media shaming. You know, the only way that, that 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 victims of police brutality experience any kind of even a scintilla of justice is if somebody's there to record it and expose it, and it goes viral. And so that that is something that that's something that, that's a an uncanny. You know, that's a, that's a crazy precedence that. You know, here it is that we're being, you know, we're being governed by Twitter, and that's our executive, you know, our, our, our executive branch. I mean, it rests in Twitter, and the judicial, our judicial system rests in, in social media shaming. Um, you know, me personally, um, the thing that I that I struggle with, and I just, you know, I'll be as transparent as I possibly can, is that these incidents um, are happening so. So, so 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 quickly and so consistently that I find myself becoming desensitized. Um, I mean, if you remember years ago, you know, when you watched the news or you read a headline that somebody was murdered, 
um, it, it startled you, it, it, it petrified you. And now it, these things are happening so, so quickly and so frequently that I'm just becoming desensitized because it has become the new, the new norm. And so when you become desensitized, um, desensitization and, 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 ap and, and apathy seem to go, you know, hand in hand. And so I have to fight to not become desensitized and to not become, you know, apathetic and to not look at, look at this head on or face to face because it's just, it's too painful. Brother Jonathan. Yeah, I, I think those are all great points, especially with Jamar, where he kind of ended just now talking about the fact that he's been desensitized, or that so many of us have been desensitized to seeing, you know, especially young black men killed on the camera. I, as I sit here and think about the statement that he made, and realize how true it is. I, I've seen so many black men die, especially on camera, obviously, because we see it over and over and over, and we can replay these scenarios and these incidents in our mind and know all the details about it. And as I sit here and think about it, I really can't think of very many times I've seen on camera or recorded, you know, people of other cultures die, uh, which would mean that, you know, when I see it, I would feel more shock. Uh, but I've seen so many young black men die over and over uh, on camera that is, it really has just done a lot to us, you know, as far as our, our mental wellness and, you know, uh, it's, it's just very alarming just to see something like that so traumatic over and over. But about this situation here, what really um, hits me is, you know, I've always had a lot of try to be solution based. And anytime I give public comment, I try to provide ways that, you know, we can help to restructure the system or we can help to, you know, be advocates. And a lot of it would be very politically driven. But what's been so sad about um, the most recent events is that I've noticed that so many of the things that I've always talked about and advocated for, we have actually been doing in these cities where a lot of this is happening. Things like, you know, we've always said we needed, you know, more uh, minority representation in government. Well, at least in many of the cities that we've been seeing a lot on television, you have black mayors. For example, um, we see a lot of DC, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, Atlanta here lately. But these are people who actually even have black female mayors. Um, and in many cases, as with Minneapolis, we have black um, police chief um, who was actually ahead of that program. And those are so many things that, you know, we've been advocating for a long time and saying if we could just get the right people in the right leadership modes, a lot of this will stop. But so far it hasn't. And that's what's been really uh, disheartening um, to me too. And then one, one more point, just the fact, especially from as far as police reform goes, we've had um, some, some proposals, you've seen some, some cities talk about defunding the police and others who have spoken about, um, you know, banning chokeholds, I think that's what Minneapolis did. Um, but the problem is really beyond that. It's, it's the fact that value of life and humanitarianism is not kicking in with the officers who are being caught um, with, these, with these murders. You know, you, I, I struggle with this George Floyd situation because they're saying he was resisting arrest. How are you resisting arrest if you're already arrested? You're already on your side. And that's what's really, really bothering me. So when they say things like, we're going to ban chokeholds, I can only get so excited about that because it's not necessarily the move that he did, but it's the fact that he did it for almost nine minutes. 
he, there's, there could have been a way to have uh, uh, apprehend someone appropriately. And then when you see them begin to suffer or become too uncomfortable, you're, the humanitarian in you has to kick in. And that's when you're there to, to help preserve life, to save life, and to make sure in no way that we lose it, even if a, a serious crime had already been committed. You know, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be very personal with, with, with my take. Um, it broke me. Mm. It broke me. It, and we're going to be talking about trauma here in a minute, but, but I'm going to tell you to see that man beg for his life. It broke me. And some of you on here know this. Um, I hadn't cried that much since I lost my mother. Mm. It, I'm still trying to process through the pain um, of what it means to be black in this country. Mm. When we cannot get due process, we're citizens. We have every right, like anybody else, to be treated. And for that man to be down there for eight minutes and 46 seconds and for his spirit to leave his body. Mm. It broke me. I don't think I'll ever be the same. as a black man in this country. I serve this country. Lonzo served this country. And for us to be treated this way, it's a shame. So, so I say, where do we go from here? I don't even wanna hear about reforms. We've been reforming forever. We have to transform the way this country operates, the direction that we're going in from education to policing, to healthcare. We need a transformation. I'm not, I don't wanna hear about reform because the same people that are reforming the system are the same people that operate the system. And so if you can take anything from what I've said to you, how I feel, a lot of black men feel it broke us. Let's transition. There's always been this myth that racial profiling doesn't happen. I mean, I've been told countless times, you know, those, those scenes, they don't, they don't occur, police brutality. If the guy had only, you know, uh, comply, well, we know comply, if you comply, you die. So um, this idea of racial profiling and police brutality. Talk about your experiences with this, uh, Brother Tim. Um, you know, I've, I've been racial. Like I said, when I was 11 years old, I saw my sister and her brother and her husband being beat up outside of uh, outside of my house. Um, I've had, you know, police 
you know, I'll be in a car with somebody, I'll be pulled over for no reason, no just no justified reason, and, and the police will just have an attitude. A lot of times it feels like they, you know, if, if you try to reason with them or talk with them, it's almost as if they talk to you as if you're less intelligent, and they give you this whole vibe and whole look like they've already, uh, they've already, uh, demoralize your character just by looking at you, just by the color of your skin. They already figure that, that I guess they've already figured your character out in their mind. And, um, you know, I've dealt with it. My family's dealt with it. And, um, you know, like I said, man, and the same thing, the reason why you were saying, you know, you don't want to hear about none of the, uh, none of the other, the, the stuff you were talking about. That's why I said what I said in the beginning, man, like that, it's going to be up to us, you know, it's going to, be, but then oh, the Black Panthers was a good thing and they ruined that. You know, it's almost like every time we, we, we raise up and we say, all right, we're not going to take this. They try to find some way to infiltrate and to um, break it down. So at this point, I don't know, man. Maybe we need to be the secret black society within society. Maybe we need to move in silence amongst ourselves and get a plan together. You know, but that's going to take all of us, you know, and we, we got to, and, and all of us, you know, even if all of us come together, y'all, we're still the minority, man. So, yeah. I mean, I would, at this point, I would just say, you know, if, if I think if all black and all Latino people in the world was on one accord, that would be very powerful, you know, but, but to me, I don't know how to get there, but the answer is unity, man. The answer is, moving is one and and being that the the voice is getting big it seems like it's getting bigger with with these things uh, even though it was just another another murder yesterday um i don't know man um uh, yeah um I, I think i'm talking about more than just my experience with uh with, with police but um you know it brings me to all these other things man but yeah i've, I've dealt with and i've had friends get beat up by the police you know it's just it, when you grow up in a black community, and I grew up in a black community that wasn't necessarily a high income community. You know, you get it's, you're right. You get you get desensitized. You don't get desensitized to police. Nothing with messing with you, but it becomes the norm. It becomes it, it's not a shock anymore. It, it, it only it only creates more disgust. You know, um, but yeah, that's that's me, brother Lonzo. I've been racially profiled plenty of times. One and one time in particular, me, a Puerto Rican guy, a Hispanic lady I was with, and he was with a, a white woman. We were going into this hotel in uh, Lacey, Washington. So the white girl goes in, and then he goes in and tried to get a room. They told him no. He needed two pieces of ID. So he came back out to the car and told me that. And I went in, I had my uh, Michigan ID and I had my uh, Army ID. So I go in, I pluck it down on the on the table and the guy said, verbatim, you don't get it. We don't like, we don't like your kind staying in our hotel. Mm. So we ended up turning around, but my friend wanted to bust out the windows because we both were angry. I was like, no, we don't need that kind of trouble. Let's, let's just go. You know, I've been through on, on the hood of my car a couple of times. And I had I had just got my master's. I was having tacos over a friend's house, and uh, a car, uh, uh, SUV pulled up. It was about four different cars pulled up right by a church, Unbe unbelievable, right by a church. 
They get me out the car, slam me on the hood. And my friend looked at me and was like, what did you do? I was like, I haven't done anything. You know, I gave him my ID. And then the lady said she was looking for, I had a Dodge Neon at the time. She uh, said that a Dodge Neon, a two-door Dodge Neon had committed a crime and shot at somebody on the other side of town, right? So I'm like, it's a two-car, two-door. I'm driving a four-door, so why would you even pull me over? So she pulls out a notepad, and it did have Dodge Neon on it. It happened to be my birthday. So uh, although I had some drinks in the car, they pour, we poured them out, and she told me to enjoy the rest of my birthday. So I thought, you know, it was kudos at the end because they actually could have gave me a ticket or took me uh, downtown. But it was just unfortunately that I was profiled with the four-door when it was a two-door that did a crime that was possibly about four miles away from where I was at. I was nowhere in the vicinity. You know, so it's unacceptable. Brother Jonathan? Yeah, I remember being about 16 years old uh, when I first had my first kind of instant uh, that, that that was pretty unforgettable. I was in Coweta, Oklahoma, which isn't too far here from here in Tulsa. Uh, but there's nothing down there but a bunch of cows and, and dirt. But I was down there uh, working at a fireworks stand uh, for the 4th of July. Uh, and I was working with my little brother who was about three years younger than I was. And I remember uh, a, particular, a particular customer who came up he was an older white man, and he got a little frustrated because we couldn't find the type of fireworks that he wanted in our stock, and he ended up calling us coons, uh, which is kind of a, a old-school way of um, saying something derogatory to, to um, African-Americans. You don't hear it as much uh, nowadays, but it was something that was said to us when we were kids, and we went to straight shock. I mean, I wasn't on any response or, or I'm going to tell you what I think about what you said or anything like that. Uh, Michael, I was just shocked and just didn't say anything. I was a little nervous and it felt intimidated to say anything because of where I was and the fact that I didn't really know anybody else around. So it was just something that my brother and I were quiet about and we tried to talk about later on that night. Again, like I said, he was three years younger than I was, so he, he wasn't even familiar with the term at all. But I remember also just a few years ago, as far as law enforcement goes, I was just returning to Tulsa from Oklahoma City Thunder basketball game, and, and that's about an hour and a half away. Um, and I was driving with my wife, and we got back home around, I say about it was a little after midnight uh, from being on the on the road. But I and I got just a few blocks away from my house, and I realized that a car was following me, like very very closely. Uh, and I was very alarmed because um, I didn't know who it was or, or why um, I was being followed so closely. But it was very obvious to me, and I was really nervous about that. As was my wife, who was my fiance at the time. So I was so close to my house that I decided to go ahead and go home. And I pulled right into my neighborhood and right into my driveway just to realize that that car had decided to block me in my driveway so that I could not get out unless I would have just tried to put the thing in reverse and just run right into them. That was, that was an option. The other option was to just stay where I was. And I, I remember just wishing because I had no idea who was behind me. Uh, I'm about to get robbed, and I, I'm wishing that I had a gun. I did not have a gun on me for my protection at that moment. So I opened my car door, and, I, and that's when I looked behind me and realized that it was undercover um, officers, members of the gang unit, who decided to get out of their car. And, they, and by this time, they were approaching me. And I, I relaxed a little bit just because I knew it was law enforcement. They weren't in uniforms or anything like that, but they had their flashlights, and they were walking up to the car. And just had just the silliest reason to, uh, to to stop to not stop me but to follow me, saying that they couldn't tell where my license plate was from because it was a Chicago or Illinois license plate. It was my wife's car at the time, and that's where she's from. 
Uh, and then they apologized saying they didn't mean any harm or to spook me. But I've looked back at that moment and think if I had a gun, which again, I was really wishing I would have had one, I would have gotten out the car with it. And then I would have been facing uh, an unknown, and once again, unknown person. I didn't know their identity. I didn't know they were law enforcement until they were six feet in front of me. And I would have had a weapon in my hand and they could have said, oh, he had a gun. And who knows how that story could have played out. And now I look back on it and I'm happy I didn't have a gun because of how that story could have played out. But it shouldn't have come down to that since I didn't break any rules, no traffic infractions or anything like that. They were simply profiling um, my neighborhood because it was the African-American part of town. Uh, and I was a black driver with a black woman and it was late at night and they were taking their chances to see if anything was in my car with their flashlight. Brother Jamar. Well, um, I've had many, I've had several, you know, uh, interactions with cops, but the one that I think has probably been the most scarring was a few years ago when I lived in uh, Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Mount Pleasant is a suburb of Charleston and it is a, you know, it's a predominantly, it's a, it's an affluent um, white city. And if any of you have ever been down South in July, you, you, you know, and understand that it is the temperatures there. It's, it's two degrees less than hell, you know, so I had, um, I used to walk in the morning. So just to, just to be wise and beat the heat, I got up at 4.30 one morning and went walking in my neighborhood. And um, I was just walking and I got, you know, pulled over by, well, pulled over by the, by the police, by a police officer. And he um, asked me what, you know, what was, you know, what was I doing there? You know, you know could he help me, you know, find something? Uh, was I lost? And, you know, I explained to him that I lived in the area. Um, and so he, uh, he asked me to show him uh, identification. And I just said, one, well, you know, I don't have, don't have it on me. So he, uh, he asked me for my name and, and, and he ran, you know, they ran my name and he asked me the same questions over and over again, I guess, in, a t in an attempt to try to catch me in a lie. Um, and then he said that I was uh, staggering, you know, while I was walking. So he made me take a sobriety test. Uh, so I had, you know, you know, I'm a law abiding, you know, I'm a law abiding citizen. I live, live in the area, you know, I paid association fees in that area. And so I just had never felt so humiliated and demoralized um, in my entire life. But he eventually, you know, he eventually let me, let me go. So well, I, I can tell you, if, if I started rattling off all the times that I've had encounters um, pulled over from the police, we would be here for the remainder of our time. I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I'll give you two incidences. One was in Menominee Falls, which was a predominantly white area. I took my car just outside of Menominee Falls to get some work done. And back in those days, it wasn't called uh, ATMs. They were called time machines. Y'all remember that? The time machine. And, uh, and so I had to go get some money. And the, the mechanic told me, he said, well, the bank is about uh, blocked up. So just walk up to the bank and pull some money out. And as I was walking on the sidewalk up to the bank, a uh, police officer passed me. He made a U-turn. And then he pulled right up in front of me on the sidewalk and said, where are you going? I said, what do you, what do you mean, officer? And I explained everything to him. 
And he said, let me give you a ride. I said, officer, I don't need a ride. He said, you don't understand. You make a lot of people nervous in this area. So I had to get in his car for him to, you know how humiliating that was for me? <laughs> to get in his car, get my money, and he drove me back to the auto repair shop. Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm coming home from work. I'm dressed in a suit and a tie. I see a detective behind me weaving in and out of traffic. He pulls me over. I turn around. There's at least six police cars around me. They get me out of the car. I said, what's going on, officer? He says, there's been a robbery in this area. I said, what did it look like? I said, because you just saw me from the neck up. They searched my car. This was in a very busy area where people were coming by, were staring at me. They kept me there for about an hour. He threw my license, he threw my driver's license to me and, and went on about his business. I filed a complaint. The attorney told me they pulled over every black guy in that area that day. And it turns out when they caught the, the suspect, he was white. Okay, that's that's wow. that's just I, I could go on and on and but this but this produces and this is what I, I want that's crazy. those of you who are not who are not people of color to understand that this is produces what we call racial trauma. Living with trauma every day of your life. I mean, I don't, the pain, the resilience that one has to have to live with trauma every day of your life. Not a moment, not a waking moment that you don't know that you're black in America. But I want to talk just briefly about how, how do we, how do you, Brother Tim, how do you live with this sort of trauma? Me personally, man, um, you know, I think conversations like these are good. I try to talk to people. I try to make people, even people outside of the African-American community, if they're open to it, I try to make them aware. Um, and, um, you know, um, for me, I meditate, man. That's how I deal with trauma. I, I I recognize that I'm not really my mind, nor are my emotions, or am I, I'm, but that's a whole other topic. But I deal with trauma by realizing that the trauma is, is not, is an experience I had, but it's not who I have to be all the time, you know. So meditation helps me, helps me uh, get through with that. But then you got to ask me how I, deal with my family members that are dealing with that kind of trauma. And at this point, you know, you know, I think, I think black people have always, um, you know, they gave us the chitlins and we turned, we turned, even though chitlins are not healthy, I'm not advising anyone to eat chitlins, but we turned it into something that for us was beautiful. And then you got to look at hip hop. We couldn't afford uh, instruments and we couldn't, afford uh, classes to play the instruments. So we took uh, the records from our, mo from our mothers and our fathers and a microphone and we created a culture that's the biggest culture, probably in, uh, the biggest music culture in the world today. I think that black people have, we, we took the, the N word 
and and although you know it's it's a debate amongst people about it, you know, but there's a generational philosophy that we took a word that was meant to harm us and we turned it into something that now other cultures want to say it, and they're mad they can't because we turned it into we turned it into charisma, we turned it into something uh, that that other people looked at like they wanted to be like it. So, you know. As far as we're going to get through this, I say that to say we're going to get through this. You know, I think something drastic needs to happen. You know, but before it's trauma, let me, let me go back. I got off topic. Before it's trauma, man, um, I think the more of us that can meditate, stay level-headed, and, and stay clear enough to, to, to um, at least live in the – try to live in the solutions as much as possible, even if they're not – right in front of us we can't jump from a to z but we can go from a and we can take a couple of steps towards b and just keep moving and, and until you know enough of us stand up that's all we could do from my from my end you know but hey enlighten me same to you brother Liza. uh knowledge itself helps me with the trauma so by me knowing who i am and where my ancestors really come from it helps me deal with the trauma of day-to-day -day living and uh, also uh, meditating. Meditating helps me a lot too. You know, it's a day-to-day -day struggle, putting one foot in, in front of the other, dealing with the trauma that you get in this society, especially uh, being a, a black man and looked at as a threat um, everywhere you go, everywhere you go. I forgot my um, other bullet point I wanted to bring up, but it, it just slipped past me. So. Uh, you can go ahead and proceed. I can't remember. It, it was a point I wanted to make. All right. Jonathan. My, um, my value comes from God. So you know, whether a man or a person of another race or my own race values my life or not, you know, uh, my value comes from God. And at the end of the day, you know, my relationship with him is, you know, is, is what I stand on and what, what gets me through any traumatic experience that I have. Uh, but also, um, the other side of that is, you know, I, I'm married. I have my wife is, she hears me vent a lot. It's great to have somebody that I can talk to about, you know, things that I've experienced or things that I see or, or go through, you know, time and time again. And, um, you know, I, I know everybody doesn't have that situation, but and that's definitely a, a big way that a big mechanism that I that I have. And I just talk to her a lot and just try to have she has the ability to soothe me. She has the ability to, to make me feel valued, and, and it's something I appreciate. Brother Jamar? Um, I, I have found much of my, my fortitude has rested in community. I mean, I've had people like, I've had an inner circle like you and a couple of other Black men that I, could, that I can call up and be transparent with. Because I think that you know we, we, we look at we look at all this trauma and the black male experience and we and we see you know we see social we see videos that are that are going viral. However, much of the trauma that we um, experience as black men, we oftentimes don't have the the words to articulate it um, to other people, especially in the workplace when you deal with microaggressions and you deal with um, covert racism. You deal with you deal with racism and experiences that you don't necessarily have the words to articulate, or if you did explain them to other people, they would think that you were, that you were insane, that you've gone bonkers. And so people like Michael Owens, I can give him a call 
and I can say, brother, this is what happened. And I don't need, I don't need, I don't need to, there isn't much explanation that's required. He just, he gets it and he, and he understands it. And so um, I think any, I think black men definitely need, need community. They need other black men that, that, that are like-minded, that they can be transparent with uh, because they're the only ones that understand, you know, our, our interior um, because our trauma, you know, our trauma translates into domestic violence, um, alcoholism. I mean, those, those are things in our, those are things that are symptoms of, of black men that have been traumatized. And when you understand the black male experience, I mean, you will, I think, I think a good thing for anybody that's in this video is you've probably, this is a good time to, um, to check out um, Denzel Washington and Viola Davis in the film Fences. I think that's a very good didactic tool in understanding the interior um, of the, the black male experience because what August Wilson does so successfully is that he, he steps so deep into the interior of the, um, the black male experience to where, I mean, you look at this man, this man, you know, abused alcohol, he, he cheated on his wife, and many times we get distracted, you know, by th th those are bad things and we get distracted by those things. But what August Wilson does is that he helps us delve deep into the interior of this man's experience to where we don't, we don't villainize the man for those things, but we understand the pathology and we understand his, his, we understand his experience and consequently we have nothing but sympathy, um, sympathy and understanding for this man. That's a, you know, that, that's an extremely um, powerful point you just made there. This idea of um, not knowing unless you know, and, and unless you experience that. And the brotherhood, there was a time, and I'm going to say this, and maybe we're getting back to that. There was a time when brothers stuck closely together. Uh, there was a time where I, I could be in Philly, I could be in L.A. If I saw another brother, he would, he would nod at me. He would say, what's up? He would give me that. Nowadays, <laughs> brothers walk right past you. You know, that sort of unity and being able to have those conversations with someone that understands your trauma is extremely important. You know, it's, it's, and, and, and people will say, well, you know, do you, do you go to a counselor? <laughs> it's really hard to talk to someone, as Jabbar has pointed out, when you don't have words. The experience of being a black man is, you don't need words with another black man. All you need is his presence. That's how I deal with the trauma, is I have Jamar, Lonzo, Jonathan, Brother Tim. I have those who I can talk to that understand that I might not have the words, it might not come out right, but they understand what's going on inside me and in my heart. And so it's therapy to have one another. And uh, without that, um, I don't know where we would be. I think it's a survival mechanism for us to have each other. Um, 
I, I guess I want you to, <laughs> I guess I want you to understand that, that this racial trauma, and I will tell those on this, this uh, video conversation to do some research about racial trauma. It's, it's very serious. And uh, it's with our young boys and young girls. They're exposed to it at a and they build up this resiliency to make it through life. I don't know how to remove racial trauma unless we, again, uh, transform our society. We have a couple comments and we're gonna get to your questions here later, but I think uh, a couple comments are worthy of mentioning brother gerald says education and conversation like this is a good start information like we like like what are microaggressions those commonplace in, in indignities intentional unintentional and how they communicate negative and derogatory prejudice and insight well brother uh i'm gonna say go to my uh to my podcast on being a black man in America. And I break down in quite detail the microaggressions. Um, uh, brother Phillips said, the N-word should never be a word that needs to be embraced. I have a brother with a bullet in his head because someone thought he was an end. Finally, a voice put God first. Um, so we will get to, we want to, uh, get to your questions here in a little bit. Uh, but one question comes in, in mind and um, Natalie's on the call with us that coincides with the next kind of topic we're going to address is Natalie says, how when it's not the responsibility of any person to educate me being a white woman on their experience, can I express the desire to learn about the black experience thoughtfully while recognizing no one has an obligation to help me. And I want you to keep that question in mind as we talk about our growing number of white allies and what advice do you have for them? And let's, let's start off with Brother Tim. Um, you know, I have a, a friend right now that I've been kind of going back and forth with that um, you know, we almost became enemies at one point. And he's a good friend, and he, he's done some cool things for me. I've done some cool things. We, you know, he, he's helped me out in some situations. And we talked, and it, it occurred to me that, somewhat, that, that, that that white people are brainwashed by white supremacy, white, white supremacy too. Um, he grew up in a little city called Walnut Creek that's, that's not very multicultural. And I had to sit down and I had to really break some things down to him. And, and, and it really made me see, okay, if I would have never had this talk with him, his whole way of, of, of looking at um, African-Americans would have been through, through the news or through the media, you know, and what, what, he, what, what he sees. And um, I think, you know, my, my answer to that would be dialogue. I think that we have to all be able to, if, if we're going to, because at the end of the day, if it's really going, if it's really, um, if the ultimate for, for America is, is beyond race and it's citizens versus establishment, if that's what it is, I'm not saying it is or isn't, 
we're, we're going to need allies from other cultures because we are a minority in this country. Um, so I would say dialogue. And everybody try to, when that dialogue happens, everybody try to understand, even if you're disagreeing on, on first impulses, you just want to just, you know, be violent or whatever, try, try to understand where the other person is coming from and why they are coming from that and what they might have learned or been taught because everyone is programmed. We're all like computers, and we only know what we know through our experiences from birth to, to where we're at. It, knowledge is infinite. The more you know, the more you don't know. But um, I would just say dialogue and, try, and, and then trying to understand each other as best as we can and try to and, – and at the end of the day, realize that it's not about – black people being mad at all white people. It's about justice versus injustice. It's about being humane. And I think that that dialogue amongst um, different cultures, I think that, that that needs to be had, you know, at some point, you know? Brother Lonzo? Well, I entirely agree with his statement that we need to have honest dialogue uh, with one another in order to figure these things out. You know, how else would I know something about you unless you tell me and vice versa. Also, there's a very good book by um, James Baldwin and Margaret Mead. It's called A Rap on Race. And they're just having a raw, uncut, unfiltered conversation about race in America in like 1964. It's dynamite in a book, TN, pure TNT. It'll blow your mind. Margaret Mead, James Baldwin, Rap on Race. Check that book out and continue the dialogue with your friends of other ethnicities and get to know them and they'll get to know you and things are iron them things uh, things are ironing itself out. Brother Jonathan. Yeah, I, I think the brothers have already really, really hit the nail on the head with this one here, but uh, yeah, I, I just remember just the night last couple of weeks ago when George Floyd died, I had a, a white friend of mine who, you know, we went to school together in college. We haven't, we don't talk very, very often or anything, but I remember him texting me that night and asking me if he could call me uh, that night. And it was around 1130 or so. So very, you know, uncharacteristic or not predictable. I, I had no idea I would be talking to him on that day, but he wanted to reach out to see how I was feeling and, and to see uh, what I thought about the situation and, uh, you know, he wanted to see how he could, you know, be an ally or, or how he could, uh, you know, best get acquainted with the struggle and and uh, do his part as well. So my thing would be just to make sure that, you know, you're truly genuine in the situation. Uh, you know, everybody who's out in the streets aren't always about the business <laughs> and uh, things become trendy. And I would really say before you do anything, just, just really check, have a self-honest self-reflection you know, why is it that, you know, I, I'm involved or, or is, is this something that, you know, I, I truly care about? I'm looking at these different corporations and everybody's all of a sudden saying Black Lives Matter when, you know, three or four years ago, Colin Kaepernick was out there, put his neck on the line, put his job on the line, actually had a cost for what he was doing and what he was saying. And what's happened is you're seeing all these corporations, whether it's, you know, whoever, the NFL or NASCAR or Starbucks or whoever it is, they've calculated that Black Lives Matter is where the money is. And now they want to say that they've, you know, been on this side and, and have always, you know, understood. But, you know, we have evidence that that wasn't the case. A few years ago, one man suffered greatly for stating it. 
Now you'll see every, almost every football player is going to be taking a knee this year all of a sudden. It's because it's become embraced. You know, in many ways, it's been whitewashed and it's become uh, uh, socially acceptable now. So please check. And you can only do it for yourself. You know, I can't do it for you. You have to check with yourself with a true self-reflection. Do I really care about this situation? And if so, I'm going to talk to people in a genuine way, asking true questions so that I can grow. And, and you'll, you'll begin to find ways that you can you know, do your part. Jamar. Well, my response is probably going to be a bit more kind of provincial because I subscribe to a biblical worldview. And so <laughs> the church has just been, you know, been my life. And if you look at, if you look at the historical um, work for the upward social mobility of people of color, it has always emanated from the church. You look at the abolition movement, you look at the civil rights movement. Um, and then you look at today where you have, you know, you have, you have, you have a white evangelical um, allegiance to a racist uh, demagogue. You know, there, there's a, I think that we need to understand that there is a dialectical relationship between Trump allegiance and overt racism. And so speaking of white, Alliances. I mean, what what I would what I would call for my white brothers and sisters in the faith is to openly repudiate and sever ties with the religious right and Donald Trump. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> uh, I have been talking about that very thing for a while, and that um, the very principles of Scripture says, and Jesus said it Himself: "When I was hungry, you fed me." While I was in prison, you came to visit me, right? Uh, the very things of Scripture teaches us that we are to do unto others, right? That we have neighbors. And if we don't, if we're not guided by, by that principle, then you can't label it as being anything of Christian faith. And I think a lot of Christians, um, white Christians in particular, have, have struggled with this idea of how do I remain in this conservative view when uh, I see these things happening before my eyes? And out of the abundance of the heart, one speaketh. I mean, that, you know, that's Bible, as, as the preachers say. And, uh, and so you cannot discount what a man says or a woman says to justify some support for policies when uh, the most important thing is human life. Mm -hmm. uh, and yes, I, I agree with everything that's been said. And, and uh, Natalie Webb, your question is a very important one. What I, I, I want... If you have your pen, I'm going to give you some things. And, and, and this is not something you need to, um, you know, do a uh, extra Jesus on. But I'm just going to give you a few things that I think if you just go to YouTube and put this in, you will get sort of like a brief uh, definition of what these is. Number one, uh, you got to start with slavery. Number two. Uh, convict leasing, the convict leasing system. Number three, black codes. Number four, Jim Crow. Uh, 
Number five, redlining. Number six, mass incarceration. Mm. Mm. If you go through all of that, you will get a picture of the black experience. Mm. And at every level, in every generation, black people have been oppressed. Even though we have made scribes, there's always been a pushback. After Reconstruction, after President Obama, after the Civil Rights Movement, we have to anticipate, listen to me, my friends, we have to anticipate Although we are seeing change happen, there will be a major pushback. How deep, how hurtful, I have no idea. But it will happen. Learning the, the best way to articulate what's going on with Black people in this country is to understand the experience. You can understand it in an intellectual way, but I want you to understand it in a personal way. And when you look at all of these things, I just want you to say, what if that was me or my family going through those situations? How would I feel? Mm. So um, great, great question. Um, in the book, A Rap on Race, I think is, um, is, is really important. And also just being educated um, yes. on what black people have went through in this country. There is a, you can't get it in school. No. I mean, many of the folks on here didn't even know about the Tulsa race massacre until they got out of school and started living, right? It happened right in Tulsa. Mm -hmm. um, you, you can't get it that way. So, um, and I want to, the other thing I want to say to our white allies, it's best to ask black people, help me understand what's going on. I really want to know, right? Don't come from a place that you understand. Come from a place where I want to know, help me, educate me, share with me that experience, because I don't know it. And I think black people will be receptive to share that with you. But many times we see our white brothers and sisters come in and when you try to share, they're telling you, you know, all lives matter, right? Racial profile is mm -hmm. not that big of a deal, right? Uh, I know good cops. Right? You're not listening. Right. This is the time to hear from Black people. Um, I want to, uh, we have just a few more minutes and then I want to open it up for questions. And, um, you know, sometimes this can be a dangerous thing when you open it up for questions because folks, they question, they're not questions, they're statements. And they're, uh, you know, they're <laughs> monologues, right? <laughs> and, uh, 
and we don't we don't want to do that here today. Um, but I want I just want to talk about what what is our message to younger black boys. We have some educators on here. We have some mentors mm. on here. What 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 would you say to younger black boys, beginning with you, brother brother Tim? I would say that um, you know, and this is not bragging on my part, but I'd say I've been as, I've, I've been successful. I've lived my dreams. I've traveled the world, and I and I and I grew up in the ghetto. Then I would get more people like me, and we have to put when I grew up when I grew up the generation I'm from and where I grew up, when I was in high school, we looked up to the drug dealer, the gangbanger, and, um, and, and you know, the, maybe, maybe the pimp. Because those were people in our community who, number one, and we're young, we're kids, so we're, we're impressionable, and we're not the full people that we're going to be. Neither are the children of today. But those were the only people in our community that we saw that had money, had women and had respect and had a degree of power. So we got to go to the hood, y'all. We got to go. We got to spend time in the hood, whether it's where you grew up or, or wherever, or, or at least if you know somebody in that area, because we got to bring more positivity, mainly in the hood, you know, all black people, period, but mainly where people are really, really suffering. You know, I mean, this is what they see. And I can understand it because I grew up feeling the same way until I was ble until the Creator blessed me enough to be able to get a career and travel the world and see see the whole world and whatnot. Now my perspective is broader, and, and I'm older. But we got to give young black people images. I would tell young black people, you can do whatever you want. I would use them as, as an example, as myself as an example, not to brag, but to say, yo, I came from. I came from a pretty rough neighborhood, a pretty rough place, and, and, and it can be done. It can be done because that was the main thing. When I came up, only people we saw doing it in our community were people that did elite, you know, that, that chose the street life or whatever. So I would, you know, tell young black people that anything is possible. I use myself. And then I, any other, you know, any of y'all, anyone I could use for a – and I would drill – that positive example, uh, uh, the positive image and example of what it means to be a black man entered their mind. Because right now, for a lot of young black boys and girls, the, the, the opposite is being done. Brother Lonzo? Uh, I would, what I would tell the uh, young black males is to follow their dreams and find something that they love doing and then never work a, a day in their life. And also to, to travel and see different places outside of your, your own community, if possible. Hopefully a mentor could take you somewhere to see something different. It's like a, 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 a fish that's in a fishbowl thinks that's the ocean until you take a fish to the ocean. You know what I mean? So I think that, that, that is crucial in the black community for them to see something else and see how other people are living and it can inspire them to want better. But if you're stuck in a um, downtrodden uh, environment and that's all you see, you can't see your way out of it. So I, I think that's important. And I, by the way, I mentored for like over 10 years and then I got burnt out. So I haven't mentored in a, in a while. Okay. Thank you, bro. Got Thank it. you. 
I like I really like Alonzo's point right there with exposure and just how significant that really is. And you know, we we aspire to be what it is that we see. Uh, but I, I also think about just kind of my upbringing and how my my family really uh, relates to me a very you know solemn message, but a necessary one, which was you know growing up, don't do anything to get yourself in any trouble. I mean, it's going to be tough enough already. And that was something I really had to understand early on. And you know, whether it was fair or not, you know, that's another discussion. But that was the reality that was given to me early on. It kind of helped me stay on the straight and narrow path um, to, to try not to get myself in any trouble. Um, because as we're discussing now, there's going to be some things that we'll have to go through anyways. Uh, but also, lastly, I would just say, you know, find your identity um, in God. You know, we're made in his image. And uh, that really is... Again, you know, the main reason that, you know, it's worth waking up every day and, and living this life, which can be very difficult. But when you have that understanding, uh, you definitely have the, uh, the motivation to keep going. But also, and one last thing, too, uh, you know, it's, it really comes down to us, as far as reaching back to the young guys, <laughs> uh, because they need all the support they can get. And even when they want it, if, uh, if there's been some situations, even times in my life where I just didn't have anybody to go to. Or I felt I didn't have anyone to go to, even though I had this yearning desire to link up with older guys, older brothers, even in my family, uh, because I didn't grow up like with grandparents and stuff like that, grandfathers. Um, one, I've, one I've never, I've only met twice, and then the other one, I've, I've never even seen a picture of. So I've always had that connection or that lack of connection with like the older generation that I've yearned for. And, you know, with us having this type of talk right now, um, hopefully this will be a reminder for us to just reach back to guys and young guys who aren't even in our families and even those who are. Brother Jamar. Well, I would say to, especially to, 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 to kids in, in inner cities with, li with limited resources, I would say the first thing is to, is to, is to seek sanctuary and refuge in your public library. And this is not a commercial, but a book, a book and the resources that the public libraries can offer can take you places that, your, your community can't or your pocketbook um, can't. I think um, another thing that I think that, that is very critical is that, you know, I think that, I think that we, we have to do more than, you know, than offer young black men specifically, you know, we have to do more than offer platitudes saying if you get a college degree or if you have money or if you travel or if you do certain things that your, your life is gonna be good. I think that we need to be we need to be raw and honest, and we need to we need to tell them that the rough the road ahead of you is going to be rough. It's going to be hard. You're going to have some hard hills. Um, you have some hard hills to climb. You know, I think I think the, a big disservice that the older men um, in my life, you know, did to me is that they were not they made being a black man look so easy. You know, as a kid, you just thought, well, hey, you know, I mean. My dad goes to work every day, but then he comes home and he's just so angry and so upset. But, you know, you just don't, you know, I just never knew the kind of hell that, 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 that you know, that my dad and granddad, what they went through to, to put bread on the table. And so I think that, I think that our generation and the younger generations, I think that we need to be, we need to be raw and we need to be honest with these young, these young people. And we need to tell them that it's going to be hard out here. This stuff's going to be rough and life is not going to get, any easier as you get older, it's going to get harder. I mean, I, I, I smile because that, that is, that is raw honesty. And uh, I never would, 
would, would have thought at my age I would be dealing with the same things that I did as a young man. But the reality is it, it, it's forever a struggle. And when you were talking, I remember I was talking to uh, my uncle. Uh, he was really the, the man that, that raised me. Uh, my father, although he was in a home, he was, uh, he, he was just there by presence alone. And, uh, but I had a beautiful mother. And my, I was on the phone with my uncle one day, and I said, I said, Aunt, why didn't you tell me it would be so difficult to be a black man in America? And he said, well, nephew, I started to, but uh, I didn't want to ruin you too early. I, I knew you would find out sooner or later. Wow. And to witness these young black boys coming up, um, sooner or later they have to deal with it. So I think why mentoring and all of these things are so important, being realistic and preparing them for the journey that they have to, they have to take and endure is so important. Um, I, want to, I want to open it up for some questions. Uh, we have about 15 minutes left. If you want to type in something that, um, that we can, that we can, talk about what's on your mind. We have, um, okay, so we have that one answered. There was a question. Um, okay, we have, uh, let me see here. I don't know if this is a question. 45 is a good start, but still, this is a response to somebody. I want to, um, here we go. Elijah says, I was wondering why the governor of each city can't fix their own policing. Why do they leave it up to a racist president who has proven over and over again he doesn't care. So really the question is about on the local level, um, you know, how do we, how do we, how do we address policing on the local level? That's for anyone. Uh, I can jump in first, um, Michael, because I kind of spoke on it earlier. And that was one reason why I was really dejected again was because the fact that in many of these cities we've, we've had uh, African-American leadership and uh, at, at the mayoral level, at the police chief level. But what we're seeing is really uh, not necessarily, you know, policy reforms that always need to be changed, but a reformation of the heart. And that was the, the issue that I was saying earlier about the chokeholds. I'm not, not saying that, you know, banning chokeholds was not a good idea, uh, but when you want to kill someone, you're going to find a way to kill someone. And this, and, and, and the uh, Derek Chauvin situation, he had his mind made up that he was going to stay on that man's neck for that long. And what didn't happen was he didn't turn into a humanitarian, didn't want to preserve and protect life, but instead he chose to do the opposite, which was, was to end it. And, and that's really where the, the root of this problem has to change. It's really got to come down to the human heart. Uh, of course, policies are very necessary, and there's a lot of systemic issues that need to be worked out and things that we can rectify. But at the end of the day, it really comes down to the human condition. And, and whether that, that goes for whether you're an officer or, or not. Uh, the day before George Floyd, we all watched uh, 
the, the man in the, the bird watcher, I forgot his name, uh, Cooper, who had got the police call to him in a situation where you know him being a black man seemed to be weaponized um, by the lady who, who made a false police uh, report or an exaggerated police report. Um, so I would say it really comes down to that. And as far as each level of government, um, there are responsibilities there. Um, but I would say that the issue is really deeper than than even anything we've seen in the past or deeper than I knew that it really was in the past. Because I, uh, once upon a time, was one of those who believed that, yeah, if we just got, you know, representation in all these cities, all this would change. Now I'm seeing it's going to actually take a lot more than that. And I think the, the although it's a good question, it is it is one that requires uh, a detailed uh, response uh, beyond our conversation here today. What I will say is there is a um, concerted effort to uh, destruct the um, police departments around the country. We see that in in Minneapolis, where the 13 council members voted to to do that very same thing over the next year, they'll be looking at what does policing look like. They're reimagining policing. And I think that's a really great uh, strategy to, um, to, you know, some people say defund the police department, but it, it, it means more than that. It's reimagining policing in black and brown communities and taking a community approach to designing what that mechanism is. I think that is the answer. And I think you have to get, you know, and I'm a big, you know, I'm from Wisconsin. I'm a big union guy, but I believe FOPs need to go away. We need to get rid of police unions. They don't, they, they have too much power. They protect officers. And that's just not how you're going to serve and protect a community. So um, those would be my thoughts uh, on that. Um, we have, I think they're actually working on that. They have a website, if any of you are maybe familiar with, have you uh, it's heard of a defund12.org? No, Anybody? I have not. Okay, well that's uh, all 50 states um, are loading up their information for different cities to defund the police department in states, excuse me, in cities in all 50 states and reallocate the money for community programs, education, etc. for minorities in their communities. I'll uh, plug the link in here and then you can click on it to check it out. Um, uh, it's gaining uh, a lot of momentum. Defund12.org. I see it. And um, uh, Jamie uh, has a question here that says, um, Michael, I don't believe white children should be sheltered from the realities of racism, police brutality, inequality in America. For the white folks that have children or one day will, what do you want them to know about the black male experience? What do you want those parents to do? That's a very important question. We want, we want white parents to know the experience for themselves and then to teach it, to share it, to, to make sure that their children are informed about true American history. Um, that, and, and come from a place where you recognize that they're not gonna get that in school. So you have to do that in your homes. You don't want your kids to be ignorant of the society in which they live in. So even as grandparents, teaching your grandkids the realities of black and brown people in this country, the realities of the racism against immigration and the LGBTQ community, teaching those true histories is so important because we break the cycle. By knowledge, people are free. 
And, and we have to uh, take that responsibility. See that as your responsibility. Nieces and nephews, see that as your responsibility to them, to teach them. But you have to know for yourself first. That's the key. You have to learn it yourself in order to pass it on. And seeing that as an obligation uh, to American society, as, as your citizenship in this democracy, that's the only way. That's the only way, as Jonathan thought, talked about, the hearts, the hearts start right there with, with young people in your home, teaching them uh, that racism, discrimination is wrong. And wouldn't it be such a, a uh, wonderful thing for, you know, uh, little Steve to stand up in elementary school for his, for, for his black or brown friend and say, this is wrong. It shouldn't happen like this. That's what we're talking about. Um, it seemed like you were going to say something, Brother Tim. Well, I think I think I agree with everything everyone said. I also believe that we need to um, let kids know that um, we are all we, we're we're all humans. You know that we're all because once we get into once we from the the youth are the most impressionable people, and if we can if we can raise them with with. Uh, the the experience of with with, with what uh, the the black race and any other person that's suffered in the world has been through, then we can all start thinking like humanitarians. I mean, it's a lot that needs to be done, particularly, you know, for the situations we're talking about as well. But before we can fully get there, or we could just make a choice a choice and decide to be like that, you know. But I think that um. Damn, I was gonna say something else, but I completely, completely, I completely uh, forgot what I was gonna say. But um, I think it's just a matter of, of making sure that that, that the, uh, the the kids know that we're all human, and that culture, cultural differences is not really a bad thing. It's been turned into a bad thing. Think about it. All all the white supremacists love Mexican food. All white supremacists love. So you look at food people <laughs> indulge in each other's culture people literally we could not yes have the diet that we have without <laughs> cultural influences from all over the world the great most racist white person will tear some soul food up tear some chinese food up tear some mexican food up so cultural differences are supposed to be a way that we can all grow expand and learn from one another but you know, people's ego, people's ego get in the way and go, oh, that's different. I don't want to learn nothing. That's different. I, I fear it because it's different. So instead of me learning about it, I'm going to I'm gonna put it in a box and I'm going to ego trip with it so that I can feel better about myself because I don't want to acknowledge that the racism that I'm expressing is really fear. I mean, that might be a lot to say to a kid, but I'm just saying that, teach the kid that, that cultural differences is good and that we're all human. And at the end of the day, you judge somebody by their heart and by how they treat you and what kind of human being they are. You get to know somebody and you get to feel that person's vibe before you judge their character. That's what I would teach. That, that's what I teach my younger relatives. Get to them before they're tainted. Um, Pamela says, do you gentlemen recommend the movement to support black businesses? Is this is that kind of simple financial act one black business owner appreciates or desires? I think you should support black businesses, um, small businesses. Um, the black wealth, uh, you know, when you had white flight, when, this, when uh, the suburbs were built, 
uh, all that money left the black community. And I think it's really important that black businesses be supported in this time such as this. And um, try not to take your money to the larger corporations. I know it's easier to order from Amazon. I get it. I do a lot of that too. Uh, but what I'm saying is we do, um, I, I believe in supporting black businesses. I spend money in the black community uh, and we need, if we're going to rebuild those communities, how do we do that without supporting their businesses? It's impossible. And, um, and what I want to say, uh, because we're going to be wrapping this up and, um, I truly appreciate, um, all of you tuning in and, um, listening to us, uh, and also adding your voice. And what I want to say to you is, number one, uh, get educated on the Black experience. It's not that hard. Do it with an open mind. Approach it as if you know nothing and grow from there. But I'm also going to challenge you on your relationships. How many Black friends do you have? Have you been to a Black restaurant? Are you part of a diverse organization, a black organization, one that, 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 that recognizes all of our um, cultures and um, build relationships with minority people? If you want to help them, know them. You can't help if you don't know. And uh, so I'm calling on you to do these things. And I think uh, this will, this is part of the solution. It's not all the solution, but it's part of the solution. And the fact that we have um, our white brothers and sisters on here, native brothers and sisters on here, Latino brothers and sisters on here, that is, <laughs> That is what we need. This is not just a struggle for Black humanity. It's a struggle for all of our humanity. We're all in this together. And um, if you can see yourself as being part of this, you know, um, Ralph Ellison said, the trouble with Americans is they simply don't know who they are. And I think... Um, there's an awakening of who we are and what we are and how truly we are connected. We are brothers and sisters. And at the end of the day, we must love each other and support each other. Regardless of our skin or our gender or who we choose to love, we must love each other. And so I ask you to join with me as we move forward and make our world a better place. We didn't get here overnight, okay? We, <laughs> oppression has been around a long time. We're not gonna solve this overnight. This is a long journey, but let us walk this journey together because history will speak of us. Somewhere in the distant future, a scribe will reach down deep into the archives of our time and what 
will she find? Will she discover that we overcame our differences? Will she find that out of many, we became one? Or will she find that we solved nothing and remain a divided people? Yes, history. Thank you, Brother Jonathan Alonzo, Jamar, Brother Tim. Thank you so much. We will reconvene more of these. Thank you so much. And be in touch. Reach out. Don't be a stranger. No doubt. Salute. Salute. Take care. Take care.